On January 5th, 1968, shortly after midnight, in the midst of his quest for the Democratic presidential nomination, Robert F. Kennedy gave a brief victory speech in the ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. He had just won the state primary, <clears throat> and the crush of people made it apparent that it would be impossible to cross the ballroom floor to the embassy room where we was to meet the press. And so, in a fast decision, it was decided to route him through a, a back way through a service entry, and he was shaking hands with admiring uh, kitchen workers when a gunman sprang out, snarling Kennedy and cursing him, and uh, fired two bullets into the politician's head. Robert Kennedy died uh, a day later, and his assailant, Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian Arab with strong anti-Israelite beliefs, uh, remains in prison for that murder today. In a spiral notebook, uh, which he used as a sort of diary, um, the last entry, uh, which w was written 16 days prior to the assassination, read, quote, My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more and more an unshakable obsession. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy. And so the scrawl continued more or less to the bottom of the page. So, when did Sirhan Sirhan become a murderer? At what moment? Now, if you could step back in the Bible days and speak with the Pharisees, who, after all, were the sort of leading, you know, judicial interpreters of the day, they would have said, well, at the moment, he fatally uh, injured uh, Robert uh, Kennedy, and that was the moment of the murder. And, and perhaps you'd agree with that. Certainly, that's the way it would uh, be regarded today, according to our civil codes. But Jesus would not agree with that. Because in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, whoever is angry at his brother, whoever diminishes his brother with insults, whoever says to his brother, you fool, well, that one is a murderer then and there. So according to Christ, Siren, Siren was a murderer long before he squeezed uh, the trigger on June 5th, 1968, by virtue of the anger that drove him to that actual destructive act. Continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, my text this morning, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew 5, from verse um, 21. This is God's Word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the consul. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to, to court, lest 
your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So, um, <clears throat> I want to speak first about exceeding righteousness and um, the law and literalism. Uh, in the immediately preceding text in Matthew 5:17 to 20, from which I spoke four weeks ago, we found Jesus uh, telling us that he didn't come to abolish the law. Some people think, well, when Jesus came, he just wiped it all away. And we don't believe any of that stuff anymore. He assured us that was not the case, but rather that uh, he fulfilled the law. And he also challenged us to become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. So first then, the law, uh, literalism, and uh, missing, that's the fill-in word, the mark. The law, literalism, and missing the mark. Now, we, in this text, might even understand uh, Jesus as the greater Moses uh, who was called out of Egypt, who passed through the waters of the Red Sea and baptism, who was tested in the wilderness uh, and is now expounding the true meaning of the law, not on Mount Sinai, but on, uh, on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, Jesus... Um, proceeds in the following verses of our text to show us what it means to become more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And he does this by way of contrast, describing the mistaken literalism of the scribes and the Pharisees with the true righteousness of the kingdom. Now, about the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, you remember Amelia Bedelia. I mentioned her in my sermon uh, last, and I've discovered she has some critics in this congregation. Uh, but nevertheless, she, uh, she illustrates my point well. She's, she's the great literalist of children's literature, and children love literalism. In fact, children are natural um, legalists. They will remind you of the law. Um, so, uh, the way it should be, and the way they're not being properly treated by their brother and sister or whatever. Um, Children love many of Bedelia. So, uh, this is the way it is with her. Um, when, when she's told to draw the curtains and dust the furniture and shake uh, and, um, and, and dress the chickens, uh, she quite literally draws on the curtain and shakes talcum powder on the furniture and she dresses the chicken carcass with baby doll clothes. The Pharisees were a lot like that. Uh, they interpreted the law in a very direct, legalistic manner. They were very careful. Um, <clears throat> in that manner, you see, they addressed the letter of the law. But we know that they missed or avoided the spirit of the law. Uh, literalism deliberately avoids the heart. Um, uh, Keeping the letter of the law, in fact, is always easier, isn't it? It's, it, it's far less demanding. It's, it's far less pleasing to God, too, than obeying from the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the Pharisees' way of thinking, which is the way we might think, uh, any action short of actually yielding the knife or shooting the gun is, is not murder. And on a simple level, that's perfectly correct, but... 
It, it does remind me of the boy who was ordered by his mother not to set foot out the house. So what did he do? He crawled out of the house. And um, thereby obeying the letter of the law, but, but um, you know, clearly breaking his mother's intention. Um, and it was through shenanigans like that that um, the Pharisees interpreted uh, the law to their liking and essentially made it relatively easy to follow. Um, such law uh, keeping is all a matter of external behavior. You know, you dress a certain way. You don't do a certain thing. We would never be caught hanging out our laundry on the Sabbath, right? <laughs> well, whatever, you see. And it's easier to keep, to keep the rules and to actually, you know, keep the Sabbath, to, to honor God on his day. Well, Jesus um, not only speaks to us about external, uh, internal behavior, but he also intensifies the law. Uh, he intensifies it uh, to, to make its true meaning clear. And he does this by giving the true intent, by giving the spiritual implications of a number of the commandments, feeding here in verses 21 and 26 with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Um, for Jesus defines murder uh, by talking about anger which takes us straightway to the heart of murder. Jesus tells us that anyone who's, who's angry, uh, in, in essence, is a murderer. Uh, anger kills. When our hearts are filled with anger or contempt or hatred, when regardless of the expression on our face and our hearts, we are diminishing the image of God in another person with hateful thoughts. When we angrily curse people, we hate them in our hearts when we insult people with nasty words and malice of forethought. We are, in effect, murderers. We've broken the sixth commandment. That's what Jesus tells us. And this was well represented, I think, in that reading from the larger catechism we heard earlier. It is not righteous, but completely unacceptable for Christians to be angry people. We're not to be angry people. And... Um, and you see, see what's happening here again, don't you? Again, Jesus is teaching, uh, and he does this throughout the sermon, that the root of evil is in the heart, not simply in outward actions. We're again reminded of the high calling to be a disciple of Christ. It's not enough just to do these things. Anybody can do these things. The Lord wants our hearts. He wants us to do it with the right attitude and so forth. Um, the Christian, in other words, is, not, is simply not permitted to machine gun his enemies, real or imagined, to death at 20 paces with angry, hateful words or thoughts. We're not to engage in character assassination uh, with expressions of contempt or scorn or derision. Um, that's, the very, uh, that's the very spirit uh, of, of murder. Uh, and and who's, who's not angry after all? Are you angry at God? Are you trying to murder God? That doesn't sound very righteous or very safe. Um, now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for anger in the life of a Christian. Moses, you remember, expressed extreme anger when he came down off the mountain and found that the Israelites were worshipping a cow god, the golden calf. Um, yeah, he was angry. He threw down the, 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 the Ten Commandments. Um, 
And we see um, we see also the righteous anger in the so-called imprecatory psalms of David would express righteous anger with the enemies of God. Um, and, and Jesus, we read about the, uh, in the Gospels, uh, more than one occasion, he, he expresses distress and anger over, over the, the spirit of the, of the Pharisees. And, uh, and we see it too when he clears the temple. You know, he, he, he has a whip of cords and he drives out the, uh, the merchants and the, the money changers because they're in the court of the Gentiles where they're supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of witness. And they've turned it into an oriental bazaar. Um, so, yeah, anger. But, but maybe the question we need to settle in our hearts is what's the difference between unrighteous and righteous anger, um, which Jesus compares to murder? Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones answers that very well. He says, first of all, it's a matter of focus. Is the focus of your anger directed toward the sin uh, or against the sinner? There's a big difference. Uh, we, we, may, we may hate sin with a, holy, with a holy hatred and denounce it loudly without quarter and, and without any sort of compromise whatsoever. But we're not to hate the sinner, even our enemy, who's caught in the sin and enslaved by the sin ultimately and by the devil himself. Now, there's a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger expressed also in a matter of intent. Um, what is the intent of your anger? Is it, is it a matter of selfishness, of selfishness or, or malice? Or, or are you angry because you've simply been inconvenienced and someone's damaged your pride? You're angry because that guy in front of you is driving 25 miles an hour down Daretown Road? I mean, come on. You get angry at this guy. Road rage, right? People kill each other for that. Talk about anger. Um, so is that it? Or is it, a, uh, or is it a matter of loving concern in your heart? Um, what is the motivation? Uh, does it grow out of a loving interest and solicitude for someone who's attacked you? Or simply out of a matter of self-righteous retaliation? Um, the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, sets a really good tone. He says this. This is in 2 Timothy 2. He says, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they might come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. Uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome and angry people, but they must be kind and gently instruct those who oppose them uh, with the hope that they might be saved uh, and escape the trap of the devil. Fill in words. Saved and tr escape the trap of the devil. We are, in, in all of us, in fact, frequently... Uh, admonished in the scriptures against anger. Um, Psalm 37, 8. Refrain from anger and, and wrath. Fret not. It tends only to evil. And that's true. How often anger leads to other things. You start out angry and then you do something really stupid and something that later you deeply regret. You didn't intend it to go that far, but it started back there with the anger. Um, 
we see that sort of, of thing. Um, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, um, but now, he's writing to Christians, he says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And, and the ever-perceptive James says it this way, he says, no, my beloved brethren, let everyone be, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. So, angry people um, are not only murderers, they're frequently very unhappy people. Which brings me to my second major point about the need for urgent reconciliation. Uh, Because angry people live short lives, for which no one is usually too sad, and and they, they suffer from insomnia and bad stomachs and bad backs and bad consciences. Um, not resting on the righteousness of Christ, but, but striving constantly to, to pump themselves up. I'm great. <laughs> you know, but everybody else in the world's got a big pin. I'm still great. <laughs> is, that a, is that a lovely way to live? It is, it's not. Instead, we should be resting in Christ and not filled with, uh, with, with anger and, and, and unrighteous anger especially. Um, well, um, so what does, um, what does our Lord prescribe by way of addressing this sort of careless, angry heart and speech? Look at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus' anger, uh, answer to anger is reconciliation. Uh, fill in word. Reconciliation. Instead of being angry at God and angry at other people, we're to be reconciled. And that's a very important word for Christians, reconciliation. Uh, the Apostle Paul certainly understood this. He writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and all this is from, is from Christ, uh, from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we plead with you. Um, uh, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. The apostle speaks here about reconciliation to God. Reconciliation and deliverance from anger begins begins with our relationship with God. That's where it has to always uh, start. We, we, we may not, we prefer not to think of ourselves as being angry with God. I'm not angry at God, you know. I'm just angry at everything he does. <laughs> I'm not angry. But the scriptures clearly teach that every man is, um, by sinful nature, at enmity with God um, and separated from God. We've all rejected God. We've rejected his law. We've rejected his, his rule over our lives. We try to run our own law, lives without him, which is a total disaster. And, um, and, and who was it, after all, but, but angry men who, 
who murdered Christ with their words and with their hands. And don't we know that it was for our anger and our sins that Christ went to the cross? The Bible tells us God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sin and anger against them. So reconciliation with God is the most important thing for, for every one of us. When by the grace and mercy of God, a man entrusts himself to Christ, a woman falls before God and asks to be saved, God will save them. And, and so they'll be reconciled and credited with or imputed with all of the righteousness and the perfection of Christ. Uh, indeed, that's the only way to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. To have counted to our account uh, the righteousness of Christ. But it doesn't stop there because as believers we're called um, uh, to behave in a righteous manner and if there's any possibility of it, we're, as far as we're able, fill in word, we're also to be reconciled as far as we're able uh, to our neighbors as well. Reconciliation to God and then to those who are around us. Um, so deliverance from, from anger begins with God and then we're required further to be reconciled to our brothers, even the ones who've sinned against us. It's, it's not enough to quietly tell ourselves that we have in our hearts forgiven someone who's deliberately um, sinned against us, um, um, but we also must be proactively, we must move toward reconciliation toward that brother or sister. Um, if you are sitting in church and you are preparing to take the Lord's Supper or put some tithe in the offering and uh, you're reminded of angry words or with your husband or wife or with somebody at work, you need to take steps to, um, uh, toward reconciliation to that person. I, I actually attended a church one time where they would say this at, at, when they were about to have the Lord's Supper and then they would pause and people would scurry around. <laughs> you know, brother, I'm, I'm really sorry about you. <laughs> you know, they gave people an opportunity to straighten things out that might have happened in the congregation. Uh, you know, that may seem a little artificial, but, you know, they, 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 they had it right in a sense too, didn't they? Um, especially imperative uh, for a Christian who claims to be reconciled to God. In his parable of the, of the unforgiving servant, our Lord tells us about a man who was, um, who, who was confronted, you remember this, by his wrathful employer who was righteously angry over this absolutely humongous debt. Uh, Jesus makes it an absurdly large number, um, uh, which he has uh, wickedly run up on his master's account. And so he comes and he pleads for forgiveness, making all sorts of silly promises about he'll for, for pay every penny back. Um, and he's unaccountably forgiven. But then we're told that this same man, the one who had just been forgiven this fortune that he could never repay for a thousand years, goes out and, and finds a man who, who, um, who owes him a relatively paltry sum of money, but refuses to forgive that man who pleads with him, actually using the same words he had used um, earlier. And so when the employer hears of this, he, he calls them and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded for me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him 
to the jailers until they should pay the debt. So also my heavenly Father, Jesus adds, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. You see how important this is, don't you? How does Jesus tell us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How can we expect to be forgiven that monstrous debt of sin against God if we're stubbornly unwilling to forgive the relatively small debts owed us by a brother or sister? How can we expect to be delivered from the righteous anger of God when we're unrighteously angry with men made in his image. How can we expect mercy at the hand of the Father, murderers that we are, if we have not been merciful to those who have sinned against us as the Lord taught us? So beware, for you and I will always find it easier, like the scribes and the Pharisees, to substitute ceremonial aspects of religion for the demands of a clear conscience. What I mean is it's always easier to cover over our conscience over angry relations um, with outward rituals, you know, attending church, saying rote prayers, even taking the Lord's Supper, simply to push all of that problem under a holy carpet and think all is well between us and, and man when God wants more. Instead of putting the hard work of them putting away anger and seeking reconciliation when it's possible. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you'll, you'll come humbly to someone and, 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 and you can see that they haven't forgiven you at all. You know. But you've made the effort. All right? And uh, you've done what you can. So you're not reconciled, but you have forgiven them. Um, and, and you need to, to do that. It's, um, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's always easier and far cheaper to perform acts of religious ritual that obey the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength. And then you'll see how the Lord adds a note of urgency. Fill in word. The Lord adds a note of urgency to this because in the final verses of the text, verses 25 and 26, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while he's, you're still going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard And you're put in prison. Um, The Apostle Paul uh, writes to the Ephesians. And he says, uh, Do not let sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Um, The enemy will use those angry words and those bitter thoughts. Fill in words. He'll use those angry words and bitter thoughts to spoil your relationship with God and with men. He will use it to make your prayers ineffectual. He'll use it to spoil your conscience and take away your assurance of a good relationship with God. Settle things with the Lord. Who knows what tomorrow will bring. Settle things with the Lord today. Uh, If you've been angry in your heart with His dispensations, that is, His acts of providence and the way things have fallen out for you in the last days or years or months, Um, Are you angry in your heart over that with God? Uh, Then then you need to repent of that arrogance and and name it for the sin that it is and be reconciled to Christ. And then you need to take the next step and, and, and settle things with brothers and sisters 
with whom you've exchanged angry words or harbored angry thoughts. Now remember the words of God to Cain. Um, Cain was angry with God. He was angry with God for requiring of him more than he selfishly wished to give. I'll be speaking more of that tonight. And he was angry with his brother as well. He was not only angry at God, you know, he said, well, I got good vegetables, what's the problem with that? You know, and it wasn't right. And God confronted him. Uh, and then he was angry with his, his brother, you know, his goody two-shoes brother, whose o- obedience put him to shame. And uh, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. By the grace of God, the Christian loves God. And he loves God's holy law. And he loves his neighbor. And he's not filled with pride and hate. And he, he, um, he or she knows um, that anything else is murder. Lord God, um, we... I, we acknowledge that so easily anger wells up in our hearts. We're really irritated at people very easily. And uh, we need your grace um, to recognize that and to spot it quickly and to, and to bring it before you and ask for your spirit to change our hearts and, and give us a, a loving spirit towards others. Lord, recognizing the depth of our own sin, Lord, how how much easier it can be to forgive others theirs. Um, We pray for your grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen.